Hello, and welcome to the Humble Brag Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Mandel, and I'm joined today by my wife, Sharon. Thank you for joining, Sharon. My pleasure. This is number two on making an aliyah or moving to Israel. The word aliyah is the Jewish word for people who migrate or move, make the move from one country back to their homeland, Israel. It's called aliyah. Me and Sharon are in the process of making an aliyah, and we recorded the first step of our journey in part one. This is going to be part two. And for anyone listening or following that journey, I would like to continue down, especially now with the entire pandemic and all of that. This is going to be a fun episode because just when we thought things were going our way, COVID-19 hit. So this is it. This is going to be part two of us making Aliyah. Our first episode was recorded about three weeks into our pilot trip in Israel. And it was going a certain way. You would have to listen to part one to really understand what was going on. And we had certain plans. Part of the way that we wanted to make this move happen was that we were there for the pilot trip. We were going to come back to the U.S., sort out paperwork, and we would go back. Uh, The pilot trip was a long pilot trip. It was there to help us decide where we want to live, check out neighborhoods, so on and so forth. And it really did serve that purpose, more so than what we even knew when we were recording part one, um, which is, you know, we're going to hear all about that. But when we came back as part of our plan to finish up the paperwork, we got stuck in the U.S. uh, because of the pandemic. And that really made everything go sideways, you know, from a certain perspective. But what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to continue where we left off from episode one. um, And that'll take us into where we are right now. And... We'll take it from there. All right, so what we were doing essentially is we were checking out towns, and we were really taking our time. We were walking through towns, really getting to know the people, the atmosphere, and all the all the good stuff. So one of the towns that had come up was a town called Yerucham. It was actually just 5 to 10 kilometers, maybe 15, I forgot, a couple kilometers from Demona, which is where we were minute staying. 15-minute drive. Yeah, it was just a couple miles. And... It had come up, somebody had mentioned it, and since we were checking out everything, we were thinking, yeah, let's, you know, let's go check that out. Um, so we we basically checked out Yerucham, and there was a, a new neighborhood that was being built out right outside of town, and they have very affordable apartments, brand new apartments, a whole brand new apartment complex. So we walked, we walked to that area from where the bus dropped us off, and just looking at the buildings, and we happened to see... A person standing on one of the balconies hanging a for sale sign. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. You see somebody hanging a for sale sign, so we're trying to, ah, ooh, ee, uh, can we come look at it, you know, with our broken Hebrew. Um, and he's like, yeah. So he actually showed us some of the apartments right then and there. He was a real estate broker. We actually got lucky. He showed us three different apartments. We had an idea of what they offered. Right. Different sizes. Uh, different Different colors. prices. What was different colors? The floors and some some of the stuff. And the window treatments and right, stuff. Right. So it, was, it was interesting. Um, yeah, so we, we were hooked up right away directly with a one of, one of the brokers or whatever. Um, but they were beautiful, beautiful brand new apartments in, in these little areas that they were building. And we really, we already mentioned in the past episode where we really liked the typography of the Demona area. Just the flatness and, and, and the desert we... We went there on a hunch, and we ended up falling in love with it in more ways than we had thought we may. So we were already set on the notion of staying in that area. And when we saw the Ruham apartments in that area, we were we were we were pretty sure that this is it compared to everything that we had looked at. And we looked at a lot of different towns and stuff. So it was really cool. So after seeing Ruham, we continued looking at different towns. I don't think anything really compared to it. You know you found the town when every town you look at after that, you're comparing to this one, and nothing beats it. So at a point, we just realized Yerucham is what it is. That's We like it, and nothing's going to get our attention more than that. So luckily, I remembered the name of the real estate agent. We reached out to him, and we uh, we actually chose one of the apartments that he had shown us. Right, that's the one that we ended up with. And it's interesting to note that this is not an American area. I don't know if we mentioned this in, the, in, in our last episode, but 
Uh, people making an Aliyah don't typically, especially Americans, don't typically move down south, period. The, the very common areas are central, some more up north, but uh, primarily central. So Nefesh Benefesh has, you know, these programs where they're trying to, trying to motivate people to go south or go north. Uh, I, I suppose we fall into that category, but we didn't do it because of that pressure or because of that uh, program. We just thought that we might want to check that out, and we ended up falling in love with it. But we're talking about Israeli towns where there are no e- English speakers. I mean, there are some, but... I think there's like a group of 35 people on a WhatsApp group that speak English in the town. Right, in a town of about maybe 10,000 people. Or whatever, right. So, you know, we're not talking about moving to Efrat where there's more English than Hebrew or to one of these, you know... American colonies. Um, this is a serious Israeli town. Even in Israel, and this is one of the funny stuff, the consensus, even Israelis don't understand much of what's going on down south. So, you know, you mentioned Beersheva, and, and even Israelis might look at you like, oh, what are you doing down there? Like, who lives down there? Beersheva um, is the biggest town in the south. Beersheva is already a huge city, city, more down south. I mean, Demona and Yerucham are even further. 40 kilometers past that. But I'm saying even Beersheva is usually, is very often like not frowned upon, but it's like, you know, who lives out? It's like telling somebody here in New York, you live in Alabama or Tennessee. So they'll give you this look like, Uh what, you know. Um, But for somebody without bias, like people like us, we come there, we don't have bias about here versus there. Uh, We just unbiasedly look at everything, engage it according to what, what we're looking for, what we're trying to fulfill. It's just a beautiful town, and the quality of life, depending on what you're looking for, is just, it was uncomparable, right? We compared it to center, we compared it to north, we compared it to different towns, different, again, it depends what you're looking for, but for us, we couldn't, it was unmatched quality. So that was it, we we saw these nice apartments coming up, we got in touch with the owners, and we wanted to work out a deal, so we started negotiating, as it is, just for, for perspective, a three or four bedroom brand new apartment in a place like that is about six to seven to eight hundred dollars a month that's a three to four bedroom mind you in israeli apartment doesn't have the size that you would think in america the bedrooms are much smaller the kitchen is smaller so yes it has four three bedrooms but the overall size isn't so grand and that doesn't come with any closets or any storage or appliances. Right. You have to buy and supply all of your own closets and appliances. But it is nonetheless a brand new three, four bedroom. At a very affordable at rate. That, at that rate. To compare, I was in a one bedroom apartment in Rockland County, New York, and I was paying thirteen. About twelve fifty. And that was Probably one of the cheapest places you could possibly find in that entire town. So I had a one-bedroom, twelve fifty, and that was a great price. We had found in Yerucham one of these apartments were a three or four-bedroom. I don't. Is it four bedrooms? Our place is four bedrooms. Okay, four bedrooms, and it was two bathrooms, about two seven, bathrooms. and it comes out to about seven hundred dollars. So when you talk about pricing. You know, quality of life and and pricing, realistic living and stuff like that. This is this is you know a big part of this is like people think you have to live in shit when you think about living in Israel. Um, and the truth is, depend depending on what your income might look like or what you'll do for work, which is a whole another conversation. We've had some of that, those conversations in our earlier episode, but it's just simply not true. The quality of life, depending on how much you could afford to spend could actually be better depending on where you're coming from. If you're coming from Brooklyn, New York, uh, Muncie, like cesspool, fucking hellholes, disgusting. Don't even get me started, right? We were just driving through Muncie. It looks like the, it's like, it's like going through the Bronx almost. It almost looks like Newark. It has such a low class feel to it. Dirty. Run yeah. down, overpopulated. Can't explain it. The longer you're away, the more you realize it when you come back. Every time I go there, I'm like, what is going on with this place? Like, I remember Muncie when I was a kid. Muncie was a quiet little suburb. Now it's, it's it almost looks like Newark and Bronx. But in any case, coming from these hell holes, 
where, like I said, you're paying twelve fifty for a shitty one bedroom apartment to a brand new four bedroom, even though it's a little smaller, and we'll get into all of the dynamics over there. Brand new tile floor, um, granite tops, you know, brand new bathroom, the whole nine yards for for seven hundred dollars. It's talk, uncomparable. Don't talk to me about quality. You know what I'm saying? So. We already debunked a lot of that stuff, though, in our in our earlier episode, where there's a lot of misconception. Um, a lot. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of preconceived notions about you know what people think Israel is or what it's going to be like and all that. So anyway, we we got in touch with the landlord and we we started negotiating a price. So you know, say the price was well online. You were seeing apartments in the same new complex at a certain price. It was. 2,100 shekel, which is the Israeli currency, something like that. Maybe. I don't remember now what Somewhere what in that ballpark. Yeah. You, you found apartments online for a certain rate, and then ours was a little bit more, so you bargained with them. Hey, look, I could go to this apartment for that price, or I can come to you. No, I think I think what it was is that our apartment, as it is, was already one or 200 shek cheaper, if I'm not mistaken. And we had offered that if we pay in advance for a couple months or for a year, that we would want to get it even cheaper. I believe the reason we were attracted to that apartment, besides for the location and the building and the deck and the floor and all that stuff, it was cheaper. As it was it, on the cheaper end, but there were ones on the website Yad Stein, which is Yad 2, that were cheaper than ours. So we're trying to get it even lower. I don't recall that, but I do recall... Getting it even lower than it, what it was, and it was already yes. it was already affor- it was very it was already very affordable, and yeah. I and 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 we told the guy, look, maybe we could pay up front now. Well, I- the reason we did that is because once we yeah you know, we said that you know we would pay up front, but the reason I believe we had to is because we had no security. Yeah, it was killing two birds with one stone. Our our idea of paying up front was not only to save us some money; it was because. Israelis get really nitty gritty when it comes to security and, and co-signers and all, all that all that stupidity. They like take it to the next level because you know when it comes to agreements and money, when it comes to Israelis, there's no getting around any of that stuff. So and we don't have that stuff. Well, it also speaks into if you're by trying to make Aliyah from within Israel, and we were in Israel at the time. You don't yet have your Israeli citizenship. You don't have a bank account. You don't have any of that stuff. When you make Aliyah from America, by the time you go to Israel, you're already set up as a citizen. So you have those guarantors, a, a bank account that you could you know, send a blank check to the landlord that they need, your Israeli ID number. We were doing it as complete Americans at the time, trying to gain citizenship. So by paying up front, we gave them that guarantee. Here is everything. We're not going to screw you over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to understand. We So th- this transpired because, again, the last episode we recorded, we're three weeks in. We're just checking out places. What happened from there is that we, we, fell in love. F- we felt so at home and so comfortable. Our pilot trip was turning into our move. So we find this apartment. We're, we're ready to settle on an apartment. We checked out so many places. This is it. Yes, we'll come back to America to finalize paperwork. But we decided we're going to we're gonna complete Aliyah from within Israel because Nefesh Benefesh does have the program whereby you can become a citizen while you're already in Israel. This is the program that we wanted to follow. We find our apartment. We start. And we got a plane ticket already to come back. Yeah. We start, we start like setting everything up for this grand plan. And so this is essentially what we were up to. So in order to get around some of the guarantees and all that stuff, we said, we'll pay up front. Hey, here's, here's a year. And mind you, when it's that cheap, how much is a year of, do you understand that when you move into an apartment, a serious apartment in America, in New York area, with the down payment, the security, and the broker fee, which you often have to pay, you're at about, depending on how, how expensive the apartment, you're at about five to $7,000 just to move into an apartment or to a house. That's standard where we, you know... First and last month rent, security fee, everything, yeah. For me to pay for an entire, for the apartment for the entire year, at that rate, we were talking about under eight grand or around eight grand, whatever it was. That would be to move into an apartment here in, in the U.S. and cover you for one month. So it was a no-brainer. We got this good price. Let's pay for a year up front. We'll be covered for a year. Awesome. Right? So we made that deal. 
signed the papers. Uh, and we ended up getting the cheaper rate because of it. The rate they originally wanted and the rate we ended up getting at the end came out to about two months free rent. Now, for Israelis, it's not common, right? So to have a young couple who's ready to dish up the cash to pay for a year from that's very that's good security for the landlords. They they live up in Netanya, I think. Netanya? Yeah, over yeah. four hours away from us. So they drove they drive all the way down and we all meet by the uh, broker, by the real estate agent. Second week of apartment. February. That was the second week of February. Second week of February we did this. So we meet up there, we sign the papers, we're going back and forth first on text just to figure out the the Hebrew club because it's Israelis are notorious for having very, very detailed and nuanced and complicated um, lease agreements or rental agreements, and it's very much in favor of the landlord. Yeah, like things you wouldn't expect. Also, you have to remember you're in another country. The renter, first of all, is responsible for the property tax. The renter is responsible to repaint the apartment. Could you imagine in America if the landlord told you you have to paint the apartment walls when you leave? There's very different things in Israeli. Yeah, agreement. there's a lot of clause in there that protect the landlord, and we were warned about that. So when we see the paper come through from the real estate agent, before we even sat down and met, we're like, okay, we're going to iron this out. So first we needed somebody to translate it. So we went to our siblings who speak Hebrew, and you know that was a whole ordeal. But finally we got that translated. And and then, of course, we have revision requests. We we want to modify some of the clause. We're not you know going to accept all of the stuff that's in there um so that's what we did and and thankfully our landlord spoke english right and they, they spoke a pretty good english they're also a young couple out of natanya so they're you know we weren't dealing with 60 year olds young couple they understood and they were very flexible so they essentially gave in to pretty much what we would call normal normal clauses and agreements so before even sitting down, here we are ironing out the details over text as best as we can with the English they knew and translating some stuff back and mm -hmm. forth. Then we finally meet, we sign, um, and we were to initiate a bank transfer. There's an app called TransferWise. TransferWise is a great app for moving money internationally. They take the lowest fees. Uh, they're a really solid app. I've been using them for a while. Um, we use TransferWise, go straight to the bank. And we paid them for the year. They actually were nice enough to give us the key. Yeah, they actually gave us the keys to our apartment before they got the wire transfer. Because that was the day that we signed our lease. They gave us the keys. They went back up north. And it, we told them it would take a few days. They were such nice landlords that even though our lease was starting March 1st, come the second week of February, they gave us the keys. And they allowed us to start doing what we needed with the apartment. Right. Well, the idea was that we're we're in Demona. We have a paid-up Airbnb. We can't move into this new apartment. The lease doesn't even start until March first. But we're still there for two weeks. If we have an apartment, let's start arranging furniture and all these other stuff. Let's start making it our home before we go back to America, so that when we come back from America, we have a home. Yeah, because we were only supposed to be in America for two weeks, so we wanted to get as much done in, in our brand new apartment as possible, so when we come back in two weeks, we have a bed, we have a functioning apartment. Amazing. Really sweet couple. They were nice enough to give us the key. We started moving stuff in there. It was We're talking about brand new construction. I mean, there was still dust on the wall. They had to clean the place. They were still doing the door frames. Yeah, yeah. It was brand new complex. And the lighting were just fixtures. finishing it up. So... We, we made sure that they cleaned all of that up, and then we were, of course, you know, when they said that they were done and they cleaned it up, it's not, you know, an American version of clean. We still have to come in there with mops and, and, and brooms I, and, I had and a, really clean it. I had to wipe <laughs> but, uh, the walls down, yeah. because if you know any, anybody knows anything about spackling and cleaning the walls, there's just this fine layer of dust everywhere on every doorknob and every wall it takes multiple everything. washes to get that out three washes everything just <laughs> yeah it's a day of just three washes and over and over and over things. yeah yeah so crazy but you know this is exciting this is and and mind you back then this again before the pandemic everything is going very smoothly very easily and and what's so interesting about this this notion of everything going so smoothly i was just talking to yuri my brother, 
as I explained to him, you know, in spirituality, there's this idea that nothing good, nothing really good comes easy. And I know this really well. And this, this is, this is in business. This is in life, relationship, everything. If you have a real vision on how things come about, you know that it never comes easy. The best stuff comes through hard work and hardship. It's just the way of the world. Knowing this and then knowing how smoothly things were going, I almost feel silly that I was so optimistic. And naive it, almost. But at the same time, you have to be optimistic. So so it's like a conundrum. It's like a catch-22. You have to be optimistic and, 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 and believe that everything is going to work out. But you can't have an expectation that it's going to work out smooth. No expectation. I, I, don't, think, I don't think we had any expectation. And we, we discussed all. all that. That's what was so great about it. We had zero expectations of it going smoothly and going as just free flowing and yeah. lucky. Lucky. It was too good to be true, which lucky in fact and, it was. Lucky and blessed. And that's how we felt. And but now in retrospect, it's it's like I give a chuckle. It's like, wait, so it was going so smooth. I know nothing great comes easy. But I still had to think positively, and everything was going ultra, ultra, ultra smooth. Um, and then essentially what happened was we prepared the apartment as much as we could. We did an Ikea shop, things that were important. We needed a bed, a mattress, a couch, desk for Nate to work at. You know, cause yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about all that furniture okay. stuff, all that furniture stuff. Um, I just don't want to get bogged down too much into those details right now. But essentially, we, we prepared whatever we could. Now, right before we leave, we're at Sharon's brother for maybe a bar mitzvah or something in Efrat. And there's this there's mention of this uh, virus. Well, we had also already and left Demona, our apartment, our Airbnb. Yeah, we packed were up and left. Packed up and left. Now, we left a lot of our stuff in Yerucham, in our apartment, because why we're coming back in two, three weeks. So we leave half of our stuff or most of our stuff. We're just taking what we need for this, you know, quote unquote vacation to America for two, three weeks. And we're going to be back. We go to Efrat for the last weekend before we're going back to the U.S. And there's there's this talk of a virus and some Israeli who's quarantined. And it was like this far out conversation. It was on the news, but hardly spoken about. It was just nothing. It was really not much of anything other than a little bit of discussion. We fly out in the airport. We see some people have masks. I would say like in our line, you know, out of 100 people, maybe 10 or 12 or 15 were wearing yes. masks. Yes. Um, we were not. We weren't even aware of the, of the you know, how, how serious the entire thing was. Um, I remember having that conversation about, you know, I always looked at the Chinese, how they wear the masks. And I remember thinking in the airport, like, well, this is so weird, you know. That we're in Israel and we see yeah. a handful of masks. Like, remember, it was weird. It being so funny. But we get back here and then the pandemic, basically, COVID-19 blows up and it turns into this pandemic. Well, even before that, we come back here and we start automatically going to get our paperwork that we need and ship out our stuff. Yeah. So I think at first we followed protocol. We had the pallet that we discussed all packed up. We repacked it, had the shipper pick it up, the whole nine yards. We shipped out our pallet. We started getting our paperwork aligned, whatever we'll need in Israel to complete the Aliyah process. And then we get a message. And then the pandemic. A few pandemic, days later that our flight is canceled. That's where it started, right. Because it was, our flight was canceled only not even a week into being in America. Our flight got canceled. And then we were nervous about... COVID-19 blew up. We still plan on going back, but the flights are canceled, and that was it. From there, it was just, I, you know, I don't even have to say what happened, because we know what happened across the world. But here we are stuck. We shipped all of our stuff to Israel. We have a paid-for apartment in Israel. We have nothing here but a suitcase each with just, you know, five pairs of clothes or whatever. And we're stuck, and we can't get back. So... Everything that was going so smooth, so clean, all of a sudden, boom. And this is what you, you know, um, uh, what, what is it? It's, uh, they say, prepare for the word, uh, pray for the best, but prepare for the, oh, I forgot the line, but 
hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Or yeah, whatever. something like that. Like that's essentially what it was. So, so now that this was happening, it's like, oh, okay, okay, this is okay. I could fuck with this. This is what you know. This is what I expect a move like this to be. A well, move we- to Israel is a big thing. It's not a little thing. So and spiritually, it's it's almost bound to have now. It's so coincidental that on during our move, the pandemic happened, which is so abnormal. But the fact that some something happened is not. Um, it's a huge move. Here are the stepping stones and the hurdles. Welcome to the game. What's up? So that's essentially what we were thrown into. So what happened was we kept on looking for flights. We booked a couple, so we book another flight, and then right before the flight, we get a cancellation email. Okay. Most of the cancellation emails always came within two weeks before our flight, saying that it was going to be canceled. And on the fourth flight, it came the day before. And that was just completely shocking to us. We were ready to go. It had already been two months in America. We thought we were finally going home. Then we get that email. Then my parents help book us another flight that's a hundred percent going. The next day, we get to the airport. We have all of our bags packed, and they don't let us check in. Yeah, it was a complete disaster. Part of it is that Israel was being unclear about you know what was going on. They said if your lives are. A, revolve around Israel or based in Israel. So we figured we have our rental agreement, our pallet, our entire life is now in Israel. We have all these paperwork showing that we're making Aliyah from within Israel, that that will let us in. Nope, we weren't cleared by the consulate. Doesn't it count. turns out, we forget about being cleared. We, we didn't even apply for anything. It turns out that you need to get a paper doesn't matter, even if you're a citizen, you need a paper to clear your passport to fly back, and there's only two airlines going back then. Uh, El Al? Continental, what's Continental called? United Airlines. United and El Al. So we had already bought three sets of tickets before this, and and that tied up like $5,000. So mind you, we dished up most of our money for the apartment that's already paid in full for a year in Israel. We dish up thousands of dollars for multiple tickets and the refunds are not coming. They still haven't come. So that's, that's when we had your parents help pay for the the United ticket because we already have thousands of dollars tied up. Um, Everything that could, you know, go South is essentially going South. After we were turned away from the airport on that final one, we tried to get in touch with the consulate first. You realize and learn really quickly that the Israeli consulate is like talking to a brick wall. It is nearly impossible to communicate or get anything meaningful out of them. And right. what we what we essentially did is we we started you know pulling rank, doing the good old Jewish thing. So I had I write up an entire sob story. How we're stuck here, which is the truth. And I start reaching out to everyone we can, and of course Jews. You know, everyone knows someone who knows someone. So my mom knows the co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, so he got his personal email. I ended up getting in touch with the owner of Nefesh Benefesh, the owner of the Jewish agency, uh, one or two mayor, literally a mayor. Mayors from, in Israel. From Israel. Everyone that we could possibly get a hold of about our situation, we got a hold of. And, and this was in the middle of May. This okay. all took place in the middle of May. And everyone everyone was going to help, right? Right. Everyone's going to help. But all roads led back to the consulate. Everyone's ideas essentially ended when it came to the consulate. And the consulate, the government wasn't just, doing anything. There's nothing they have their they have their whatever their policy is, this, that, and the other. If you don't fit into it They don't they, care. They, yeah, there's just nothing nobody to talk to. They don't care. So you could you could say, as we were, we're essentially stranded in the U.S. We have no apartment. Remember, we gave up everything in America. We gave up our apartment. We sold your car. We gave up everything. So we're stuck here in the U.S. The two suitcases were the stuff. Right. It was, I guess you could say, a reality check. It's like a level of acknowledgement. You're not going anywhere. 
nobody cares. The couple people that you know cared enough to try to help, sent an email, made a phone call, that was the end of that. We're not going anywhere, so now what? The whole idea, and here's the thing, as the pandemic progressed, Israel says, we're probably not even going to let tourists in the entire year. So the, the idea of us going... We were considered tourists because we didn't have citizenship. Right. So the consulate says, what kind of visa, where, what kind of visa do you have or what kind of visa are you eligible to get? Oh, none? Okay, sorry, can't help you. So they don't care if you're stranded. They don't care if you're stuck out in the water. They don't care if you're going broke because you're double paying for your entire life. They, they don't care about anything. If you don't fit into the policies and the criterias, end of story. So there was just a nice reality check. We're not going anywhere and we need to change our plans. So we basically take a step back. And we're in touch with Nefesh Benefesh, Jewish agency, like I said, everyone completely equally worthless. Besides for the whole consulate issue, we essentially, we basically realize collectively and decide that we have to abandon, we have to abandon our plan to do an aliyah. From within Israel. We right. have to now... Go back to the original plan. The all roads led to the consulate and needing to get a visa, one of the three types of visas that would allow you into the land of Israel is an Aliyah visa. How do you get an Aliyah visa? For making the move from one country into Israel. You can't get it from within Israel, which is the process that we were doing. So now we have to change our entire approach to getting citizenship, which meant changing our application with Nefesh Benefesh. We needed some new forms, we got new information of things that we needed to get, stuff that Israel was originally going to do the legwork for. Now we had to, but it became extremely difficult because agencies were closed and we couldn't get things that we needed. Yeah, so changing the type of process from within Israel to from America, changing that, that application type, meant a whole bunch of new paperwork pop up. And guess what? Paperwork, a lot of it, needs notary, needs apostle, stamps, so on and so forth. You could not get that back in May like you would during the year if there was no pandemic. You couldn't simply go to an office and request a certain form. Offices are closed. They do not have the staff there. Only slowly but surely certain offices were opening up. Then you have to make an appointment. But there's so many people that want to get into that place or to get forms that you're now waiting on a line. And things that could take a day or two now take three to four to six weeks to obtain. Yeah, easily. Uh, even now, even now we're already past phase four or whatever. Even now in are. July. I just... I was just able to, today, to make an appointment to get a notary stamp in the New York consulate for two and a half weeks from today. The first appointment available was at the end of July for one notary stamp. And he needs his notary stamp because on a form that he already got notarized, he already got certified, then he already sent it out to Albany to get the certification of apostille. He spent weeks getting every step on it, and... He sent that, when did you send that out originally? And a weeks ago. And you had it and you uploaded it to your file. And all of a sudden, oh, it's not done the way that we want. You're going to have to do that again. Which is like makes your heart drop because anything that now needs to be done is like almost another month that you're stuck yeah. here. So we found out that instead of getting an apostle, which takes three to four weeks, if he goes to the consulate and gets a notary there they won't require the apostle. So you save three weeks of time, we thought, by sending something in by mail. But we didn't save any time at all because the appointment isn't for two and a half weeks. Yeah, these issues are, are really, it's a myriad of issues. It's a pile of issues, a pile of shit. And going through this, I can now sympathize with so many other applicants who are going through this now let's just let me just preface by saying that 
Nefesh Benefesh and the Jewish agency are overloaded with applications. They've never had so many applications at once. Something about the pandemic causing a lot of Jewish people to think or consider or to move to Israel. Okay, so I, I understand that variable. Nefesh Benefesh is overloaded. They have tens of thousands of applications. But these issues that we are describing are not new issues. These issues have been happening even from before the pandemic. And let me just say this. It's appalling how bad the system is at Nefesh Benefesh and the Jewish agency. Okay, the consulate, I understand. When you deal with government, so granted, they have shitty technology, shitty websites, shitty policies, fine. There's fine. no excuse for these agencies that exist to help make your move easy. Their sole purpose is to take each individual through the same exact steps to get to their end point. They do this continuously, endlessly, week after week, month after month, year after year, applicant after applicant. They should have it down to a science and a seamless process, which it is anything but. Yeah, I agree. No, it's such that the gross incompetence displayed by these organizations is mind-boggling. And if it hasn't touched you, uh, you know, through your application or through your move, you're lucky. Because now, in dealing with all of this, we're exposed to everyone else who essentially is going through the... And, and let me just put into perspective some of what we're talking about here. These are simple processes. I run a business. I know all about organization. I know about websites. I know about applications. These are things that you could solve in one month with a couple UX designers and a couple people that have brains. The fact that they run a, a company and to think that tens of thousands of people make an Aliyah every single year going through this process is mind-numbing. An example of, may I give an example? Yeah, yeah, go. So we've been going through step by step by step. I'm a little further along in my process than Nate is. I'm now at the point where I need to send in my passport to get my Aliyah visa inside my passport. I have the forms, my the new pictures. I have everything that they need. I have submitted every single piece of paper they wanted. I've done my interview. I've passed on to what is most likely the final step. All of a sudden, I get an email. Now, we're in New York right now, so I'm dealing with the New York office. I get an email this person has been assigned to your case. Please contact one of them before moving further. And it's the Midwestern office in Chicago. I need to send paperwork to them, but I can't send a certain paper because it needs to be signed in front of somebody. So I'm writing this email two days later. None of the people assigned to my case have responded to me. I've written four emails, and I'm in a rush. I, I, I want to get through this. Finally, somebody reaches me back. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm looking up at your file and I see that we have no forms on record. You're going to need to submit. And I was like, wait a second. I've submitted all of those forms. I go, well, we, we don't have any of them, so you're going to have to submit it again and then we're going to have an interview. Interview, I've already done an interview. Writing back and forth. It turns out my name got sent to the wrong office and they were starting me from square Let's not say square one, maybe step three out of like seven. So I messaged the person that I had the interview with in the New York office. I go, what is going on? I'm really confused. Somebody else is trying to interview me. Can you share my forms that I've already given to you with them? It took days to settle this out. And I wasted an entire another week just to get back to the same point that I was at to get it straightened out. It's like there's no understanding or sensitivity to to what people are trying to accomplish. Um, another example would be simply submitting a paper. Now, mind you, as we already discussed, getting a paper with a notary stamp and then to get it blue flagged by the county and then to get an apostle on it could be a month process. So when Nefesh Benefesh... Just for one paper. When Nefesh Benefesh or the Jewish agency decide that you need a paper with a notary and an apostle, could be a month process. And if you're someone who's already a year into the process, or somebody like us who are already trying to be there, we were supposed to be there, we were there, you know, that whole nine yards, we're trying to be there as, as quick as possible. If they screw up, 
and tell you that you need a paper with that, that means you're not going for another month and there's no, there's no way around it. Now, Which if is, that happens once if in a two-person application, fine. It's happened about five times to us. When that happens every single time you think you're at the end of the road, you have to start questioning whether the organization has any clue what they're doing. And this is what continues to happen throughout this process over and over. Zero coordination, zero organization. Nobody knows what's flying. Everything is redundant. Everything has to be redone. When also your reps, you send them an email and you're trying to figure something out. And it takes them four days to get back to you. Yeah, or they didn't get the email. You send four questions because, again, you're in a rush. You're trying to get this done. You're trying to get out of here. You send four questions. You get a response for one question. Now you have to send three more emails to get three more answers. It's one step forward, three steps backwards. One step forward, two steps backwards. So, so gross. It's just so, such a gross experience. And it doesn't have to be. It makes you really, really want it. You know how... There's this thing about conversion, and it's not supposed to be easy to convert to Judaism. Yeah. They, like, tell you not to do it, and it's a difficult process. That's what I feel like moving to Israel has now become. It's it's challenging. It's like it tests you this back-and-forth absurdity of these agencies. They're almost like, I, I mean, I know it's not true, but I feel like they're testing you to see if you really want it because it's so insane to get through well thankfully we have the mental prowess the faith and the patience to get through this so we're dealing with it and thank god we have family here to lean on and to stay by and and which is a good thing and not such a good thing right because yay we're saving money but try living at your in-laws for how many months are we here already five so it's almost a half a year newly newly married living at in-laws because because we can't afford to double pay for an apartment and double pay for everything. And so, it's not just living here. It's the fact that everyone is now stuck. No one's going away to work. No one has their yeah, lives. So stuck everyone in is house. stuck in the house. Um, so, you know, one solution begets another problem, essentially. But thank God, you know, it continues to feel like the, it's at the end of the road. So basically, I'm not going to go into endless crying and complaining about how messed up the system is all i could say and if you're going through this process there's a couple things that are very important to note the process could become messy dealing with a consulate is hell like i said a brick wall dealing with nefesh benefesh the good thing about nefesh benefesh and the jewish agency is that they pretend to care so and they may simply just be incompetent business-wise organization-wise so they may actually care, and they'll continue to be there and help you, but they're just simply not capable. And understanding that process, understanding that you think you're done because the computer screen shows you that you're done with your application, but then four more papers could pop up that put you two months behind. Understanding that and not losing your mind over that could help you get through it. So it's very, very important to understand that. And mind you, the money... The money. Before this pandemic, to get an apostle in New York City, 123 William Street, it was one issue. It was one headache. Fine. So you have to drive into the city, find parking, blah, blah, blah. Same day, though. And you, but you get you get that apostle. 123 William Street is closed, and you have to send your apostle to Albany. Which is now servicing every single apostle request from anybody in the entire state of New York. All Aside the from the de- the delay, it takes right. They're they're behind weeks. It costs more money. Um, doing an aliyah from within the U.S. requires an FBI background check. An FBI background check requires a federal apostle. You can't get that in New York. You have to send it to where was it Washington or wherever the fuck it was. Getting that federal apostle takes Took six weeks. Takes takes six weeks. But that I believe that transaction alone was four or six hundred bucks for us. The, for two people, fingerprinting, the background check and the apostle was between six and seven hundred for the two of right. us. Just just that transact. That's two pieces of paper that we needed for both of our applications. That we were only told um, about weeks after. And again, it, it came about because we couldn't complete our initial plan of doing it from within within Israel. In Israel, uh, 
supposedly they had some setup where you could go and they'll take your fingerprint. Whatever the case is, time, money, and Patience. endless headaches. That that's that's essentially what you're stepping into, especially if you're trying to make an aliyah during this this whole shit show. Like if you're trying to make aliyah during the pandemic, like we are. I mean, we kind of fell into it. This wasn't our plan. But if you're getting into it during the pandemic, things are slowly getting better. But be prepared to deal with agencies that are incompetent, either overworked or have no clue how to run. It's a shit show. Um, you might have to send five emails to get one coherent response, but you will get it if you send those five emails. If you have a short timeline, just broaden it. So that's essentially what we're doing. We keep on thinking. We're thinking now we may actually be able to go back in August. And then we find out there's one more paper that they're going to want redone. Oh, wait, that just puts us in September. Just like that one paper, bang, September. So we have no clue when, when we're going to be back home. We will have spent our our entire apartment money. We will have spent a year's worth of rent on an apartment that we're never going to touch. We, we, by the time we get back there, it might actually be a fucking year. Right? Dusty. So whatever your windows are, whatever your plans are, whatever it is, be prepared for a shit show and if you get anything less you know dance to the sky thank god because this is evidently what you're dealing with when you're dealing with nefesh benefesh the jewish agency and the consulate and like i said i reached out to the biggest guys in that game all the heads all everything everyone was very very uh, sympathetic enough to maybe send one email but it ends there it, it never goes any further than that. So that's basically the story of, you know, the, the the big picture of what has happened. We were in this perfect pilot trip. We were making this perfect move, talking about how seamless it could go. And we were navigating that. And then the pandemic happened. And now we got to work for it and really now want it. Hustle. And we'll take none of it for granted. <laughs> Um, that's a portion of it. I mean, if we jump ahead and we talk about actually setting up the apartment, that now you get into Israeli mentality. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that. I just want to say that th there's so much, there's so many reasons spiritually, divinely, why this had to happen to us. Oh, for sure. And, you know, there's already a million things that we've already seen by us being here that, you know, may have, in the end, we believe because we believe in divine providence so in the end we believe this is that the it's way it's for, supposed to be right it's for our ultimate good and and it couldn't have gone any other way so thank you god right this is how we perceive things it helps us cope as well but i'm also very realistic so that's why i put it down the way that i put it down and i don't shy away from telling you how it is or how you may feel dealing with it yeah we could jump into so there's a lot to talk about because we talked about the apartment now, you know, in our earlier episode, we were very technical and in getting into a lot of the little nuances and details because these things matter for someone who is thinking about moving and agonizing over, over every their little, comforts. And right. Every little detail really matters for someone who is having a hard time with the move. So we actually have a lot of insight now regarding buying furniture, researching furniture, buying furniture, things. all of that stuff. So I can help you. Yeah, we're going to get into that right now. All right. So before we jump into the furniture, let me just go back to the the renting for a second. So you have to take into consideration in Israel, you mentioned it briefly that if you're renting an apartment, you're going to have to pay for, obviously, Arnona tax, everyone has to pay Arnona's for. Arnona's property tax. Right, and yeah. even renters pay for Arnona tax. Um, there, there was some other, Vad Bayit, which is like building expense, is something we learned about, and that may only be because it's in a building, but I reckon... They have it in America, too, when you live in... A complex or right. town houses. It's like to take care of the land yeah. and the landscape. I guess in Israel, it's, it's it's very common to live in such places, so it's very common expense. And we paid for that up front too. Now they might not tell you. They might not tell you that. Like when you're looking online and negotiating a price for your your apartment, they might not bring it up because I remember they brought it up last second by us. So. It was it at the signing. Yeah, it felt like an add-on expense that I wasn't aware of. So that's something to keep in mind. When negotiating a rental price, make sure you talk about how much Arnona is, how much Vadbayat is, the building maintenance fee. Because somebody is going to clean the stairs in the building and change the light bulbs and all that stuff. So make you're sure you're going to you're going to chip in for stuff like that. It's elevator costs and all that stuff, and then utilities, of course. You want to know about 
about that. So we we decided to pay up front for a year for some of that stuff and some of the stuff we didn't. Uh, our Nona, which is property tax, that specifically, if you make an Aliyah, you get a pretty hefty discount for the first year or two. So whatever that is, it should be marginal your first year or two. Now, regarding furniture and moving. So I think we mentioned in, a, in the previous episode about understanding that it's not all rosy when it comes to bringing versus buying in Israel, right? A lot of people yes. think, you know, you ship from America a washer machine, it's worth it. But we came to learn through the, right, that person, Yisrael, we spent Shabbat by his house. He essentially told us it's not so straightforward. You might come to find that you could buy the same Samsung washer in Israel for the same price and you're supporting the local economy. So it's not so simple. It's just, it's always worth it to bring. So you really have to crunch your numbers on bringing stuff versus buying stuff. But whatever the case is, we wanted to furnish our apartment. So we needed to buy a couch, a bed, a mattress, and all the basic stuff. And the appliances. And the appliances. So so we really learned you know, some, some about that. So initially, I wanted to buy some of the stuff in Facebook Marketplace. Facebook Marketplace is pretty booming over there. I mean, just like here in, here in the US. So if you want to buy a mattress or, or a, our own uh, a dresser, a wardrobe, a wardrobe, you know, you might find one on Facebook. But one of the funny things that we bumped into find, realizing is that it's not easy to move stuff there. There's no U-Haul in Israel. Right. There's no U-Haul. And so what do Israelis do? They essentially they use movers. They're like handymen who will pick up your thing and take it from point A to point B. But when you crunch those numbers and compare the cost of the move and the item, you might realize that it's cheaper to just buy it brand new. Which is what we came to realize. We saw a couch that we wanted from this town. We saw yeah. something else that we wanted, some washing machine and dryer. Beautiful, affordable couch. Beautiful washer and dryer. After we shipping... We couldn't get to it. Yeah, we couldn't get that in our apartment affordably. The, 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 the amounts that you would save are so minute that you might as well just go buy a brand new one. And that's what we came to find with pretty much all the big stuff. I started looking into renting a van. No, I, I just, There's no such thing. We're so used to th this comfort in, in the U.S. of going to U-Haul and picking up a van for $20 and paying a dollar a mile. It's so simple. Go to Home Depot, pick up the washer, drop it off. End of story. That doesn't exist. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't exist at all. Maybe in the bigger cities there are some like companies, but I Googled it. I looked around. I asked around. There's no viable and simple solution to just getting a van and and, and it being affordable. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you might come to find that it's just simpler to buy brand new stuff and have it delivered. When you buy from Ikea for a little percent or a little add-on fee, you could have everything delivered. Which we did with our big order. We, right, we and, then you, and then you could decide if you want to pay even more to have assembly. But, you know, that's... All me, baby. I assembled all of it. Yeah. There's just no storage. Israel apartments don't come with any type of storage, not for dishes or anything. Yeah, no storage. You you get very uh, in America closets are a big thing. In Israel, there are no closets. So a bedroom, you're coming to four walls. You need to buy a wardrobe. So that is an expense, very very important expense to think about. Three bedroom, you have two kids, three kids. Now you need to buy three wardrobes, and a wardrobe could range between. $300 and $700, I mean, depending on which one you're getting from Ikea or from a local place. But yeah, it's a couple hundred bucks for a decent wardrobe. Yeah, there's no linen closet. The kitchen doesn't come. We didn't even have any upper cabinets. There's only lower. So everything on the wall above is just empty. Our dishes are in a bookshelf right now. I, I did come to find that it's nice dealing with Ikea. Sometimes there are some perks dealing with locals. Sometimes it's a headache. Like just getting pricing for a wardrobe from a local company who is a little bit more affordable. I found it so difficult to, on, on WhatsApp just to get them to give me a price and get an answer dragged out. Ikea, at least they don't have an online checkout. You have to go down. But it's a big company. You go down, you place your order, you know it's going to get delivered. So we found that to be a convenience that is weird, though, that Ikea, you cannot shop online and check out online. Somebody has to physically be in the store and choose the items and check out in the store. So right now we're in America. If we want to get something from Ikea, 
you have to either A, pay for some IKEA employee to shop for us, or we have to find a person to go to the store and shop for us. We cannot make an order online. Yeah, but there are some other marketplaces that are pretty good to buy certain things. Bamboo is one website. I think we bought our bed there. Yes. Um, the furniture, our couch, we and, and mattress we got from our local guy in Ruham. Which is funny, some of those deliveries. So we bought some stuff and we were going to come back from the U.S. and they were going to deliver. We never came back because we got stuck here. So I had all these pending deliveries. We ended up finding someone in Yerucham who, she went to our apartment. We were able to get a key to her and she actually accepted those deliveries. So our apartment is essentially sitting now and waiting. The, the oven's installed, right, because the oven and the gas have to be hooked up by the you know special company. And everything is there waiting for us. Our entire pallet has been right, the, delivered the, the pallet and arrived. unpacked yeah. into our apartments. It's full of boxes of all of our stuff waiting for us. Our pallet was shipped, uh, was by sea. So the ship arrived, went through customs, cleared. It's down in Yerucham. It got unpacked. We had somebody accept all our deliveries. So we have this, you know, apartment essentially sitting there waiting for us. But there are, there are a couple marketplaces. I forgot some of the names are, but... One of them I bought the washer and dryer and the oven, the appliances. One of them I bought some furniture. So there are some, you know. But in Israel, you have to, you have to, you have to check it out. You have to know what you want and you have to really play with it because they'll charge you for it, for the item. They'll charge you for the shipping and and depending on where you are in Israel, and they'll charge you for assembly. So you have to know if you need or want assembly. They might even charge extra if you're three floors up versus first floor. They're gonna to want to know if you have a lift or an elevator. So you know, all of these variables matter. All in all, though, when it comes to furniture and furnishing and all this stuff, I didn't, I don't find that stuff to be too much of a headache as long as you have some money to buy whatever you need to buy. I, I think it was pretty simple and straightforward. We went to Ikea one or two times. Uh, we just went there on a bus. We were putting in a large enough order to have it delivered. So we paid whatever price it was, a couple hundred check to have it delivered. Um, I think it was just do know that IKEA will not deliver glass and the dishes, glasses, dishes, and mirror. I think they didn't deliver anything that might break in the truck. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because if you go there on a bus like we did, we had to carry our dishes and our we, glasses. We had a nice couple bags each, and, and it was really heavy. Back. Yeah, so if if you're not going there with a vehicle, they're not going to allow you to ship stuff that could break in the truck. They have these weird strict policies regarding certain things. Outside of that, again, furnishing, buying stuff and furnishing, I think, was the least of our problems. Was I, it easy? I, I, I think it was just very simple. And, and we enjoyed it, even though we had that language barrier with the local guy in Yerucham at the couch and bedroom furniture place. Yeah. We still enjoyed it, and we got beautiful stuff. Yeah. There's nice furniture there. Uh, I, I'm trying to think the pricing. I would say pricing overall for the furniture was about the same, maybe a little cheaper than in the U.S., but not too much of a difference. They have nice stuff there, though. Just a couple other side, seemingly benign points I want to make, because in our first episode, we really stressed a lot of the little point, because like I said, it matters to someone who's thinking about these things. Of course, you learn once you move and settle that a lot of those little things don't matter. You get used to them. But before you move, a lot of those little points matter. And, and some other stuff that we learned after we recorded our first episode and before we left were as follows. First of all, we saw, we, we learned pretty quickly that Israelis put responsibility on you. Think personal accountability. Like, for example, shopping carts, grocery bag costs. Think about America for a second. We don't pay for a shopping cart at the grocery. There are some places that you have to put a quarter in in order to unlock it. And when you put it back in line, you get your quarter back. Here in Israel, you have to put in your ID number and it releases it to you. And then you put your ID number in and then you bring it back. So if you have a shopping cart that has not been returned to the stand under your ID number, you can't take another one out. Right. So it's this aspect of personal responsibility they don't allow for the luxury to be stupid right they essentially assume that you're out to get them and they're going to put things in order for to protect themselves from you getting them yes 
it's a little bit of a different mentality than in America. In America, it's all about giving. It's all about I um, I extend myself to you for that luxurious purpose that you might love me and and use me and and spend money on me. And Israel doesn't work like that. I'm a grocery. You need me. Put in your ID number. I'll give you a cart. If you don't bring it back, you're not getting another cart. End of story. Even with the apartment. In America, you go somewhere, the appliances are provided for you. If something happens to your oven, it's your landlord's. They're hiring somebody to fix it for you. Mm-hmm. In Israel, no, 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 no. It's yours, your problem. You have a problem with electricity, you find an electrician to do something. It, it's all your personal responsibility. People don't do things for you. Window shades. Our apartment, it's a silly thing. Our apartment doesn't come with window shades. If you want window shades, you put them in. Or screens, that's what I meant, screens. Yeah, they're essentially giving you four walls. You want appliances, bring them, take them. You break them, your problem. They're they're always, it's a mentality. We're giving little details here, but we notice it's it's a cultural mentality across the entire land and the entire people. In every aspect. They're always putting the responsibility on you. You don't get a free shopping bag at the grocery store. You want a shopping bag, you're going to pay five agorot or a shekel, whatever it was. You're paying for it. Um, The concept of something for free doesn't exist. And that also basically comes back to the idea of you have to do everything yourself. It's They go hand in hand. Like They put responsibility on you and you have to do everything yourself. Nobody's giving to you. Nobody's overextending. Another interesting point we realized back then was how freely children travel. Yes. I think there's an aspect of children maturing younger and quicker there. So we notice, because like we'll go on a bus from Jerusalem all the way down south, you'll have little kids without any parental... Fi- like. I feel like they're as young as like nine years old even. Yeah, nine, ten. They're traveling with their own bus card... Even take public transportation within the towns, within the towns, even younger than that, way younger, just to get to school. You so, don't have that here. Like in, there's, there's different layers to that. I think there's the aspect that kids are more mature from a certain perspective, which is maybe a beautiful thing. But I think it also sh- it shows and it plays into um, the comfort that Jews have and the trust that Jews have with each other. Could you imagine you're in New York and your 10-year-old kid gets on a bus to Boston alone, it doesn't exist for the most part, unless you're extremely trusting and, and laid back. I, I don't even know if you're allowed to. I don't, I don't even know what the laws are here in I know the U.S. Special, I just know it wouldn't happen. There's a special thing for airplanes, but you, you let the airline know and they assign a flight attendant to watch your child. But this is not the case in Israel. They're in Israel, completely free. There's just like this, so like kids are more mature, they they travel freely, jump on buses and, and they'll go far. Like I said, we sat on buses, there were kids there, they were going from Jerusalem all the way down south, they were going back home after Shabbat, no parents watching them, very interesting. And some of these points play into the bigger picture of living in the land of Israel. See, like a lot of what we discuss, a lot of what we talk about, we talk about furniture and we talk about certain like details that are so benign they're not benign if you're planning to move and you want to know all this stuff fine i get that <laughs> but like in the big picture they're such benign details it doesn't it shouldn't make or break anyone's decision there's such small details in the bigger spectrum so what are those bigger details and the, some of those bigger details tie more into some of that other stuff like for example we mentioned with the kids what's behind that why does a nine-year-old travel alone on a bus? Because it's a Jewish country and Jews trust each other, right? Nobody's worried that their kid is going to get kidnapped because, because we, we have a love and a trust for each other. That's a big thing. Police are not out to get you, right? You don't have that, that feeling like over here, you're driving down the thruway, a cop is hiding behind the corner because you're going to catch me going two miles an hour over the speed limit. That police state mentality doesn't exist. You don't feel like cops are there trying to screw you on every turn. There's a certain culture and a certain mentality that Jews have with each other and live with each other. And those are just some of the more beautiful and bigger points why people love the land of Israel. 
the beauty of the land of Israel. It's not about the washer and the dryer and whether there is a wardrobe or a closeting room or there isn't. Those are funny stuff for us to mention, but it's not about that. In some ways, there's more of a comfort in Israel. Maybe, like you're saying, not with the physical, tangible items, but there's a comfort there amongst each other. A human-level comfort. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. It's human. It's spiritual. It's divine. It's on a soul level. It's really beautiful. So that's really about it. You know, we started out this interesting journey. It's we, we, we expressed it for a reason because we forget about some details. So that's why we put it in part one. This is part two. The pandemic hit. We're stuck in the U.S. We don't know how long we'll be stuck here. We feel like we'll be back in a month or two. But who knows? All that stuff is in Israel. We feel like our life is there already, but we're kind of stuck here. Very interesting. Very out of the blue. Thank God. And what we'll do is we're going to get back there. We're going to make it back home. And we'll be delighted to share part three and eventually part four. But we'll be really happy to share part three and, and basically just express how all of this ended and turned out. And maybe some final thoughts on this on this Aliyah process when we have a full perspective and, and all of it ironed out, you know, getting the visa, getting the passport, and then maybe doing some name switching and some other legalities that we have coming up ahead. So that's essentially what we what we plan on doing. And this is our journey so far. It's exciting. We will not take it for granted when we get to our end result or goal. Yeah. Being citizens. Fuck no, this is amazing. Uh, that really makes you appreciate everything yeah amen all right thank you for tuning in peace and love